going to uh, invite uh, our speaker up today. Mm -hmm. We're going to hear from a friend of ours. Yep. This guy is one cool cat. Mm -hmm. He is uh, putting the gospel into action mm -hmm. in what I would consider some of the most difficult places on the planet to do so mm -hmm. uh, in real practical ways. Uh, no, I'm not done yet. I mean, you can come up. You can come up. Uh, would you guys welcome Steve Gamer? <laughs> Uh, when were you, it's been a couple of years since we first met. Five years. Five years ago. Okay. You were at our missions conference. Yeah. Um, I think I might have told you the story, but it was that missions conference five years ago, and I won't give the specifics now. It was the first time I got to witness God moving in regards to missions in the hearts of my own kids, and it was because of the work of partners. Can you All right. That? I'll take that. That's yeah. Great. So uh, when you guys shared that first time, it just yeah. stirred something. And I just love the work that you do. I love what you represent. Um, I won't take any more time. I'm going to pray for you, and then we're going to jump in. God, I thank you for Steve. I thank you for the work of partners. God, I pray that you would, uh, this morning, in a unique way, that you would bring us out of ourselves, bring us out of our old ways of thinking, reveal to us how you're calling us to lay down our own lives for the sake of the gospel. I pray that as Steve shares, that we would respond with open ears, open hearts, and a commitment to pursue you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> to love is to act. When our actions are in alignment with our words, we are an irresistible force for good. That's what this shirt says, to love is to act. See that? And you'll get an opportunity to walk away with one of these today. And right now, Edson gets this version of the shirt. Edson is the first name of the soccer star Pele, which I learned at introduction uh, time this morning. So thank you, Edson. And Dad Edson thought it was like uh, a Scandinavian version of Ed, because Ed would be Ed's son. But um, they corrected me. It's Brazilian, and it's a, it's a legit name. <laughs> to love is to act. Before I get into Victor Hugo's final words, his deathbed words, before I get into the greatest commandment, which is where Victor Hugo ripped it off, before I get into the Old Testament narrative, which is what Jesus echoed when he gave the greatest commandment, I'd like to tell you that my name is Steve Gamer. I have three daughters. I'm the president of Partners Relief and Development. We've been working in the ethnic states of Myanmar for 26 years, and now since 2012, we've been working in Syria, Syria Iraq, and Yemen. Our way of working is finding places where violence and political complexity prevents children from having food, from having shelter and the basic things that they need to survive, going into those places and creatively engineering access and distribution so that children don't have to suffer the consequences of war. In our work, this is in pursuit of to love is to act, or the greatest commandment. Um, 
I'd like to thank you 344,621 times today. That probably won't happen, but that's how many people that we've affected this year together. Uh, five years ago when I spoke here, when I shared at the missions conference, a number of you signed up to be supporters of partners, and so your church has been instrumental in that number. 344,621 times in the last 12 months. So from the bottom of my heart, representing my team and all of those wonderful people that that number represents, please hear a resounding thank you, Church on the Rock. <clears throat> Can you go to the next slide, please? This is a lady named Rose Moo, and... Um, this morning, we're going to look at Isaiah 58. It's a passage of scripture that I'm honored to be a part of talking about. We're having a conversation, right? So we do every weekend. We're having a conversation and looking curiously at the words that shape our faith. And I have the honor of looking at a, a passage that I've misunderstood for roughly 25 years. And I'm just starting to get my head around it. And the one who helped me really begin to understand Isaiah 58 is this widow that you see behind me with some of her 85 kids. Rose, uh, I'll tell her story later, but it's a refugee, a woman, an Anglican, who I met in a refugee camp in October 1994, who really helped me understand that to love is to act. Back then, I thought to love was to talk, to propose, and having proposed, to pray. That was love in my book. What Rose helped me see was that only doing that was a trivialization of who Jesus is and how he engaged with people. It took a widow who suffered nine months in prison being sexually violated in every conceivable way, a woman who lost her husband because they decided to be missionaries to these refugees, a woman who was like the one-woman social welfare department for a refugee camp of 9,000 people. That woman is the one that helped me begin to get my head around the gospel. Funny thing is I thought I was an expert. If you go to the next slide, please, before we get into Isaiah 58, I want to give you the sort of three verses that first got my, my attention after I met Rose. Um, the first one is James 1.27. And, you know, James was more intimately involved in Jesus than any other human being. Why? Because he was his half-brother. He grew up with him. And as children, James would have seen Jesus with the flu and dysentery and throwing up in the hole behind his house and being sarcastic to the rabbi who is trying to teach him the first five books of the Bible from memory. James was the one that would tease Jesus and they would make slingshots together and kill birds and go... Uh, trip the sheep so that they would bat upside down. I mean, James knew Jesus better than anybody. Perhaps that's why he was the last of the disciples to say, I get it, you're the Messiah. Why? <laughs> Jesus is my brother. Are you kidding? He's not the Messiah. Right? 
So James, which in my earlier years, I actually didn't like the book of James because I, I was really um, into this whole debate between faith and works and Calvinism and Arminianism and things that are so ultimately important that we should spend all our time debating them. I, I used to dislike James. And um, in fact, I was with Martin Luther who questioned whether or not the Nicene Fathers and King James should have let James into the canon of Scripture. I went that far with it. Here's what he says. The essence of faith is this. Pure and undefiled religion in the light of God our Father. In the light of... See, I don't have my progressive lenses on. And um, that's a terrible annoyance. Pure and undefiled religion in the sight of... Our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their time of distress and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. What is pure religion? What is pure spirituality? I mean, this is the key verse for James. If you want to understand James, you got to understand that verse. And this is a resounding historical statement of truth. <laughs> you know pure faith because widows and aliens and orphans and the poor are being cared for. James is actually echoing Deuteronomy and Moses and Ezekiel and Jeremiah and Isaiah and virtually every Old Testament writer. It's a broken record through scripture. Real spirituality, that's the stuff. Widows and orphans. <clears throat> Paul, of course, says in chapter 13, Verse 8 and 10 through 10 of Romans. Owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. It's another way of saying what Jesus said when he's asked, how do you go to heaven? Twice. What does he say? Love God with your whole heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. We call it in the tribe of faith, the golden rule. And all it is is an echo of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18, repeated again by Jesus. To love is to act. And finally, in 1 John, this was the verse that um, really began to get my attention after meeting Rose in 1994. When I reread the Bible, I, I had new eyes. I was asking, how does Rose or refugees fit into the story of the Bible? And all of a sudden, they fit in, asking that question. And 1 John 3, verse 16 says this, we know Jesus' love because he laid down his life for us first. And that's what we ought to do for one another. That's love, right? And verse 17 says, who of us, if we have material possessions and withholds from the poor, how can we say God's love is in us? And verse 18 says this, let's, not stop, let's, let's stop just talking with our words and our tongues and begin loving in action and deed. When I read that, it was like a Shazam moment for me. I had this epiphany that the gospel was not just a series of propositions whereby one repeats them or prays them and, and transfers allegiance from darkness to light or hell to heaven. 
The gospel was all-encompassing good news where I bring the very best that I have to offer to the world. Being an ambassador of Christ and having offered that, I invite people into the same abundance that I've discovered. That's the gospel. So having looked at these three verses, I'd like to get into our passage, Isaiah 58. If you'd change the slide for me. Isaiah 58 um, is a part of what Aaron taught on last week in Isaiah 53. And that is the return from uh, captivity and exile back to Jerusalem. So the children of Israel, the Hebrew tribe, were building the temple and Jerusalem. They were rebuilding from the rubble their beloved city. And they're going about their work. And if you read chapter 57, you can see a lot of that. You can see a lot of what's happening. There's a lot of messianic prophecy in these verses, especially 56, 50, or 53 to 58. And then Isaiah comes out, beginning in Isaiah 58.1, with this. Shout with the voice of a trumpet blast. Shout aloud, don't be timid. And then he takes on the voice of God. He's speaking as a prophet with prophetic utterance. And as God, this is what he has to say. Tell my people Israel of their sins. Yet they act so pious. They come to the temple every day and seem delighted to learn all about me. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. They ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. And then the people say, we have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves and you don't even notice it. So... God opens here with um, some words that cause confusion and anxiety because the children of Israel, especially, especially the aristocracy, the priests and the, uh, the, the leaders of the social institutions for the Hebrews, they're all at the top of the pile and they think they are doing a righteous duty by rebuilding the temple that was a temple to celebrate the God who freed them from slavery. Remember, that's where it came from. That's what the temple's about. Remember the whole Pharaoh thing and the plagues and all that? The temple had to do with freedom from slavery. That's the whole point. That's the celebration of the temple. And now the aristocracy get back to Jerusalem, assemble the crowds, and begin building the temple. And they are doing everything right. We're keeping the feasts, we're keeping the fasts, we're exercising righteousness, we are even flagellating ourselves in order to help God understand that we're on your side and you also therefore ought to be on ours. We've been hard on ourselves, God, and you don't even notice it. We've fasted before you, why aren't you impressed? You don't even notice it. Well, if you go to the next slide, Isaiah continues in, in chapter 3 with this. I'll tell you why. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves even while you fast. What's that sentence saying? 
Well, it's saying that the aristocrats are fasting and indulging, overindulging. They're gluttonous. They're, they're, uh, they're taking the day off to celebrate the feast to completely stuff themselves with the very best food that is available to them and drink. They exchanged faithfulness to God for a party and for their own self-indulgence. They exchanged what should be an act of humility, which leadership is, for the arrogance of being on the top and having everything they need and indulging in it. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. Now, um, that's an interesting verse because uh, what I understand from looking at this text, people who are smarter than me uh, say that this has to do with slavery. See, the aristocrats were not just building a temple to the God who freed them from slavery. Guess who was building the temple with their hands? Any guesses? <laughs> Slaves. I mean, duh. <laughs> like, I mean, what are they thinking? Building a temple with this kind of heritage and legacy, using slaves, their own kin, their own people, people who are socially disadvantaged and financially unable, who are not a part of the aristocracy. Interestingly, Isaiah was born into that aristocracy. He's one of the power brokers and a wealthy guy and appears to be exchanging his social stature on behalf of the poor. It's like Victor Hugo did, who actually on his deathbed said to love is to act. Even while you fast, you keep oppressing your workers. While you fast and take the day off, you make the poor pull a double shift. While you fast and take the day off, you know, talking about how faithful God is, you make the single mother go to work and leave her sick son at home with tuberculosis who died that day. All of the injustices that you can imagine were occurring in the time of Isaiah. And it was not occurring at the hands of the enemy or the Babylonians. It was occurring at the hands of the aristocracy, their own kin. What good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling? You ever wonder what that means? I read a story about um, two individuals who were debating who was right and who was wrong about a particular Bible passage. This, uh, this, this debate turned into an argument and there were uh, punches thrown. And it turns out one of them went home and got his handgun and came back and shot and killed the guy. What were they debating? <laughs> who was right and who was wrong about the Bible? And if you think that that's a long ways from what we could understand in our context, I mean, just, think, just bring up um, race, abortion, human sexuality. Bring that up um, in the wrong crowd with the wrong text after a couple beers. That can quickly turn to blows. I've had it happen to me. <laughs> Not blows, but people get very angry. And in the, in the environment that we're in, there's, we, we've kind of, we're kind of uh, in a really highly polarized 
uh, social construction right now where you're either this or that and there isn't really any debate going on. There's not, there's no, there's, there's little human kindness in that debate. Get angry really fast if someone doesn't agree with your position and we become, you know, blood rushes to the head and we want to hit that guy or walk out or whatever. Well, this is not new to society. This was happening in Isaiah 58, 500 years before Christ, just after uh, King Cyrus the Great released them from captivity. Almost immediately, that kind of polarization is happening. So these guys are overindulging in every way, and it turns, into, turns to blows. At the table of feasting, while the poor, poor pull a double shift, <clears throat> this kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me, says God. You humble yourselves by going through the motions of penance, bowing your heads like reeves, reeds bending in the wind. You dress in burlap and cover yourself with ashes. Is this what you call fasting? Do you really think that this will please the Lord? And this is like a monstrous moment of missing the point. I googled missing the point the other day just to see if I could find some funny anecdote. I came across, across Thomas Jefferson who was an abolitionist who had more than 600 slaves and one of them was his lover. <laughs> That's what I call hypocrisy. None of us wants to be a hypocrite and yet I am. And I guess when I read Isaiah what I get is a, a, a call to a, a deeper level of humility. And not just humility in the general sense. He gets into some specifics here. We'll get into that now. To love is to act. Can you go to the next slide, please? Okay, we're getting into the nuts and bolts here, you guys. Hang on, hang on with this one. No, says God, this is the kind of fasting I want. Free those who are wrongly imprisoned. Lighten the burden of those who work for you. Let the oppressed go free and remove the chains that bind people. That whole statement has to do with people who work in a disadvantaged uh, justice relationship with their employer. At the extreme end, it is slavery. And that's what was happening here. But it is doing work without agency. It's doing work being forced. If you've read John Steinbeck, The Grapes of Wrath, it's, you know, Tom Joad being forced to pick oranges to almost pay the bill to keep his family fed on the plantation. It's, it's the socially advantaged or the socially more resourceful, the economically resourceful, rather than being a force of generosity and goodness and kindness, instead, their wealth has turned them into oppressors. And, you know, if I sound socialist to you, take it up with God. <laughs> it's really easy. I don't have to defend it. This is right there in the pages. <clears throat> working without agency. Break those chains. And then he goes on in verse 7. Share your food with the hungry and give shelter to the homeless. Give clothes to those who need them and do not hide from relatives who need your help. I especially hate that one. <clears throat> 
When I read this in my early years of faith, and, and even reading it multiple times, my first few years I read the Bible through cover to cover a number of times. I actually kept track, and since I'm being self-righteous, I'll tell you I read it seven times. Um, I read it and I managed to misunderstand it all seven times. And that was because of, again, because of the cultural construct that I was a part of. At the time, I was a part of a very Pentecostal church. And they were wonderful to me, and they gave me a start. I was a pothead acid dealer from Fairbanks, Alaska. I actually had a grow operation on the Parks Highway in 1985, so I was early out there. And I, I got involved with this Pentecostal church, and, and um, their, their parsing of this passage was a spiritualization of it. So they, they, they took fasting as a specific moment, not a general description. You see, fasting here is really like we could use the word spiritual practice or spirituality. Because fasting was a feast for them. It was the routines of faith. And what I learned at my very Pentecostal early days church was that this had to do with spiritual oppression and breaking the bonds of the devil. So if I were more spiritual... And my spirituality were grounded in the power and anointing of God. I could break the spiritual bonds of iniquity. I could set the captives free. And um, unfortunately, that's simply not what this text says. It doesn't say that. And to spiritualize it is to enter into a cultural problem with your relationship with God. A cultural problem with the text. What it says is straightforward and clear. You see hungry people, you should feed them. You see people who don't have clothes, you should help them get clothes. And I know that this is a big guilt trip and that's not my point. I'm really not here to make you feel bad about yourself. Um, I mean, when I read this, I feel bad about myself. When I was driving here this morning, I thought of a guy I met downtown Calgary a couple years ago. I was about to preach at a church. He was a homeless guy who had been drinking all night and smelled terrible. Came up to me and he said, hey man, you got a dollar? And I don't carry any cash. I just carry these plastic things. And, and uh, I didn't have a dollar. And I said, sorry man, I don't have any cash. It was my way out, right? I actually had a lot of time. I could have, I could have asked him his name. I could have given him the dignity of conversation. I could have asked him what his story is. I could have figured out if he's just a bum or if he's like mentally unstable. I could have offered, you know, in the course of a relationship, some possibilities. But instead, no, man, I don't have any cash. See you later. And I, I went to church. And, and I, that day, actually, I remember thinking about it and feeling that I had missed the point. Again, <laughs> you know, the point of faith. And it's not that we are constantly stopping for every homeless guy or, or getting involved in every, you know, drug addict's life. And, and those things are very nuanced and hard to figure out anyhow. It's like a specialization. It's special forces people do that stuff. But in general, we read this and Jesus says, this is how you should be known. This is like Matthew 25. You know the, the story of the sheep and the goats? You remember that story where 
uh, Jesus separates, or God the Father separates the sheep from the goats, and they're separated, one to eternal torment and one to eternal life. And the final statement is, uh, what separates them is what they did and didn't do. I used to hate that passage, because it looks like pure, unadulterated, crazy works righteousness. It was right in there with James in my reading of scripture back in the early days. But now I get it. What Jesus is saying is you're not saved by this stuff. It doesn't save you. It doesn't make you any better than anyone else. All it is is a statement about people who follow this guy do this stuff. That's what he's saying. That's what Isaiah is saying. All he's saying is get your life in alignment with what I think is important. And you know what I think is important, says God? The widow, the alien, the orphan, and the poor. When those four categories of people are cared for, to that degree are we close to God. That's what the entire Bible says. And again, having read it seven times, I never got that until uh, a few years ago. I'd like to read a passage for you from Deuteronomy 24. Again, this is... You know, the Ten Commandments is kind of the distillation of what, what Christian spirituality looks like. Now, this is the book report on the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Deuteronomy 24, 17 to 21. You shall not pervert the justice due an alien or an orphan, nor take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and that the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. When you reap your harvest in your field and have forgotten a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow, in order that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive tree, you shall not go over the bows again because a lot of them won't fall off because they're not ripe. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not go over it again. You leave the rotten ones and the unripe ones. It shall be for the alien, for the orphan, and for the widow. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I am commanding you to do this thing. Now, I dare you to go home today and Google the widow, the alien, the orphan, and the poor. And you will find uh, a crazy amount of content revolving around this whole idea that when these four categories of people are cared for in our social setting, God is there. God is with us. Isaiah finishes that with that, and we'll get to that in a second. But we so often get off track and think that more time in Sunday school or more time doing church things or better uh, spiritual language or learning how to pray and sound like you're praying with authority, that these actions describe the person of faithful gravity. Or that reproducing the propositions of faith and getting hands raised, that that is an indication of spirituality, of God's blessing. No, if you go back to the Bible and you ask what a spiritual person looks like consistently from Genesis to Revelation, you will find that it is the person righting the wrongs of justice, injustice. It's the person, the society, the community that is caring for the widow, the alien, the orphan, and the poor, and everything that is implied in that statement. 
Single mom sitting next to you doesn't need to know that Jesus loves her. She's heard it every time she's come here. She's got that part. She needs $100 for groceries and an offer to babysit so her three kids can stay at home and she can go out one night and relax. You want to bless a single mom, do that, right? See what I mean? It's like easy to apply this stuff without getting all guilted out by the specifics. Follow me? If you could go to the next slide, please. Uh, this lady again, Rose. Um, my wife and I visited her in 1994. And uh, she told us her story. Her husband died, uh, leaving her a widow. They, they went to a refugee camp. They left their wealth, uh, their colonial era mansion in Yangon. And they, they went to help refugees. Her husband was a, a medical guy. And they started a little hospital. He ended up dying while she was in prison. Long story. She, she was in prison. He died. She came back to the camp nine months later, miraculously released and uh, sane, and found her two young children being raised by her neighbors and her husband buried in the ground. And, and this was a vivacious, amazing force of nature that could be heard, you know, uh, far away when you approached her bamboo shack, you could hear this lady's laughter always playing with children. She started a, a day program for kids, a, a library, she called it. It was really just a place for victims of sexual violence to help restore one another to, to health because of the trauma that they had experienced. And she was doing all of these things. And Rose was the one who really got me by the shirt and helped me see that to love is to act. To love is to do these things that Jesus invited us to do. These things like laying our lives down for one another. It has to do with staying up an extra five minutes to do that act of service for your wife. It has to do with going out of your way to make things better for your neighbor who just lost his job. And, and to bake a cake and take it over and say, we're sorry. Let us know if there's any way we can help. And observing, in fact, that they need help and just stepping in and helping. You know, all of these ways that in society we can be good news. It's not just our words. And Rose helped me see that. She's the reason I reread the Bible. She's the one that helped me reinterpret my life in light of what the Bible says. Rose... Uh, died in uh, 2004 and I was in the room when she died. She had gone into a coma and she was having snake oil dripped through her nostrils into the back of her throat because that was a folk remedy. Uh, but she had had an aneurysm and she was laying on the bamboo floor and there were 85 orphans that she had taken in. Uh, not all orphans, many of those children, their villages were were attacked, many of them burned down, and these children were found unaccompanied in the jungle and then carried by either loved ones or pro-democracy soldiers, carried to this refugee camp where Rose lived, and, and they asked Rose if she would take them in. Rose, of course, said yes. And uh, that day, uh, in 19, uh, 2005, she passed away, and I had 85 little orphans and unaccompanied children, unaccompanied minors on my lap, weeping because they lost their mother again. 
And for me, it was a really intense moment because I promised those children that I would stick around. And even now, I can tap into the emotion of that day and cry because it, it felt so tremendous to make that promise. We're still involved with those kids. In fact, they're all over the world now getting college degrees. And my promise to you is that when we say yes to the invitation of God, when we say yes to the invitation of, of Isaiah 58, uh, if you go to the next slide for me, your light will break out like the dawn and your recovery will speedily spring forth and your righteousness will go before you. The glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will call and the Lord will answer. You will cry and he will say, here I am. That's a promise you can take straight to the bank. If you go to the next slide, please, you can see that Jesus used Isaiah 58 when he announced his mission to the world. His first public sermon at the temple, he picked up the two scrolls, 61 and 58, and he read from Isaiah 58, and he quoted it. What is the significance of that? Well, he's in alignment with the values that we see in Isaiah 58. This is who Jesus is. This is part and parcel with the good news of Jesus Christ. Can you go to the next slide, please? I'm rushing now because I'm, I'm such a blabbermouth that I took too much time. I'm going to show you a short video now and transition into the work that my team and I are a part of and why I want to thank you 344,000 times. Can you roll this, please? The Rohingya, you may have seen in the news, are one of the many ethnic groups that are being either ethnic cleansed or many would argue uh, having genocide committed against them by their own government in Myanmar. That's one of the ethnic states named Rakhine State and uh, your church has been instrumental in the, the people that we've helped there. There are now uh, a million displaced people living in refugee camps in Bangladesh and another Two or 300,000 living in Myanmar, surrounded by barbed wire and on, on uh, isolated islands where they are held for their eventual demise. Uh, we continue to, we being capital we, all of us, continue to help those people not just see that their children matter like ours, not just understand that their children's hunger is as significant as our children's, not just um, understand that education, as important as it is to us uh, who take it for granted, it is also important for their children. What they understand is that there's hope. 
that a small Christian organization goes out and helps this nominal Muslim population. We constantly get this inquisitive look, this confused look. Who are you guys? Why do you do this? You're Christians. You're helping Muslims. Why do you do this? And what's our answer? Well, because Jesus is not discriminating. He loves everybody. And where he is least understood is where we most ought to be. And the factors of risk and, and, uh, and, and difficulty reaching them, those factors are not deal breakers when we claim to belong to the creator of heaven and earth. The only deal breaker happens right here. Um, the Rohingya represent a big part of our program work since 2012, but I'd like to read a couple other things that we've done together. Concentrating on 32 projects in the last 12 months in Syria, Yemen, Iraq, Myanmar, and Bangladesh, we helped 344,621 people, provided life-saving food for 151,529 individuals caught in active conflict, 4,198 patients have been treated for medical conditions and injuries in conflict areas like Idlib, Raqqa, and Myanmar. And all kinds of cool stuff that if you go on our website, you can read about it. When you read about it, don't think about the guy, Steve, that said to love is to act, which I hope you remember. Um, think about that that's our story. That's the story of faith. That's the story of, of a group of people believing that they are not insignificant, that they are not accepting people who say that that cannot be done because so much more can be done than we, we attempt simply because God is the one engineering it. Um, in closing, um, uh, I have these... Back at the table there, I have these temporary tattoos that I hope you'll get for your children. And uh, if you put them on their arms or nose or forehead or whatever, um, if you hashtag to love is to act, we'll get to see your kids on our news feed and that would be really great. Um, and if you bikers out there would like to put a to love is to act temporary temp tattoo on the back of your neck, I would think that's really cool too. Um, my wife and my daughter wrote a book to help children understand the war in Myanmar and the ethnic states, and that's what this book is. Uh, we have some copies of it, and then we have this handbook, or this journal we're calling it, which is uh, the last 12 months in review with great pictures and a lot of diverse stuff in it that is really describing Partners Relief and Development. Yes, the worship team can come up. Thank you very much, Aaron. And uh, those are back there too. Um, to get those, you either have to say, I want one, and it'll be given to you, or it would be really great if you signed up to contribute monthly $5 or more. Can you go? Okay. If you text partners, the word partners, to 484848, you'll be taking, taken to a page where you can commit to becoming a Partners for Change member. And if you do that, um, these things are all free in the back for you. If you don't want to do it through text or through the website, you can do it through this piece of paper um, and integrated envelope um, that is also on the back table there with Mike Becker and Ann Anderson. Uh, I am very grateful to be here today and to be a part of your community, to be a part of the conversation of faith where we are learning to put one foot in front of the other and act on the impulse of love. That makes love not just a sentiment, it makes it a force. 
That makes love something that doesn't trivialize the name Jesus, the name of Jesus. It makes him look really great. It makes him look like really great news. My experience, even with people that we would think be, would be the most far from the, from, from the conversation of faith, my experience is when people see love in action, they ask us the questions. They ask us how to get involved in that love. And I, I, I guarantee you that that will be your experience too. Many of you are already ahead of me on this one. Keep walking on the impulse of love. If you're like me, limping along, be renewed in your dedication, not just to following God with your words, but following him with everything in you. Uh, Church on the Rock, uh, Homer, Aaron, thank you for your invitation. God bless you. Anymore? Amen. Uh, the call to uh, align our lives in according to the scripture is something we all want. Um, and we are called, uh, just like Steve said, to the widow, to the orphan, to the alien, and to the poor. We're not just called just in general to people, but specifically to the marginalized, to the needy. That is an expression, the expression of the gospel lived out in substance uh, in our life. And we're called to do that both locally and globally to those if it's in our power. And so uh, here's my question for you uh, is not should you act, but uh, what is your part today with the Lord? And not in a guilt way, but to say, Jesus, what is my part? What is the more that I can do? The thing that I have to give, the thing I have to offer. Uh, It could be relationship. It could be resources. It can be time for different people in different times of life. There are different things that you have to offer uh, that reflect Jesus. And the promise is this, that as you love and as you give yourself and your time and your resources, that there's more joy and freedom and peace in the experience of the gospel as you walk according to Jesus, his way, uh, and his word. So this morning, two things. First off, Steve will be at the back, right over there. If you want to get some time, you should go check it out, buy some stuff, give, connect. Uh, and he'll be there for a while after the service. Secondly, again, our great friends, Peter and Mercy, are here with us. They're doing awesome stuff in India. They'd love to share with you. Just stop by and say hi. They'll be around here and then uh, in the area for quite a while after. Um, We don't officially end until uh, 12.30. So if you want to hang out, say hi to people, say hi to uh, Pete Mercy or see Steve or help tear down, we would love that. Love you guys so much. Have a wonderful Sunday. God bless.